Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome to our spring series, where we feature intimate conversations taken from our In the Waiting Room with live events. This episode, we feature Nahid Dasani. Today, I'm so thrilled to introduce Dr. Nahid Dasani. He's a palliative care physician who provides care for homeless and vulnerably housed individuals in shelters or on the street. He's the founder of the world's first mobile palliative care program for people experiencing homelessness called the PEACH program in Toronto. He's an educator and a researcher, but is perhaps best known for his advocacy on social media on topics such as systemic racism, harm reduction, homelessness, health equity, and human rights. Thank you for joining us today, Nahid. Thanks so much for having me on, Sammy. Really appreciate it. <laughs> okay, tell us about PEACH, which stands for Palliative Education and Care for the Homeless. Yeah, so the PEACH program is a response to the homelessness crisis that we are seeing in towns and cities from coast to coast. The PEACH program um, is a mobile street and shelter-based palliative care program that aims to provide health care for people who are dealing with serious life-limiting disease, no matter where they're at, um, in a shelter, under a bridge, on a street, so no person falls through the cracks. It started with myself and our founding um, a nurse, Namrik Ahmed, driving around in my Honda Civic and has now kind of flourished over the last few years into a, a model of care that has been replicated in cities across Canada and around the world. We have a team of, um, of nurses, home care coordinators, social workers, people with lived experience, uh, uh, psychiatrists, palliative care physicians. And, uh, you know, as of now, we uh, basically care for between 110 to 120 clients at any given time. These are people who are experiencing homelessness and who are dealing with their, their disease journeys. And many of them are at the later stages of their disease. So it's a response to the homelessness crisis. It's a response to the overdose death crisis. And it's, it's a humanitarian initiative to bring a social justice lens to healthcare, but also to palliative care uh, in, in general. So that's, that's kind of peach in a nutshell. I'm in awe. You know, I'm so curious, uh, Nahid, you know, because of course I care for people who are facing progressive life-limiting illnesses as well. But when it comes to the patient population that you're caring for, can you tell us a little bit more about what it's like to suffer from a progressive life-limiting illness when you're vulnerably housed? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think it behooves us to talk about the concept of double vulnerability. Um, Sammy, you're a palliative care doctor like I am. And so, you know, a lot of the time we, we spend a lot of time providing um, care for people who are dealing with life-limiting illness and often their end-of-life journeys. That's mm -hmm. tough. That's tough on its own. We need to talk about that. When we talk about the work that we do through the PEACH program, there's this other kind of area of vulnerability. These are people who don't have roofs over their heads. They don't have income in their back bank account. They don't have food security and they often don't have social supports. So we're dealing with that kind of vulnerability as well. We call that concept double vulnerability. These are people who are falling through the cracks again and again and again in our society. And we see that in our healthcare outcomes. People experiencing homelessness are 28 times more likely to have hepatitis C, five times more likely to have heart disease, and four times more likely to have cancer. In fact, homelessness in and of itself cuts a person's lifespan by 50%. That's with 
without adding on the extra condition or disease that we're treating them for. Homelessness is a terminal diagnosis of the social determinants of health. A lack of housing takes that many years off your life. And so we we start the work at that baseline. That's 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 our baseline for the work. And so that double vulnerability you, you speak of, Sammy, is really important in the work we do. You know, like after hearing you speak and, and answer these questions, um, you know, I think about our podcast and how we're trying to leverage and exploit and maximize uh, the idea of having time, um, looking ahead, the long view of the illness, the families and the crews that are wrapped around patients and having choices and the luxury of planning ahead. Um, that's what we want people to be able to do when facing a progressive life-limiting illness. And when I hear about you talk about your population, it, those things seem like such a luxury um, compared to the challenges that your patients are facing. Yeah, you know, I'm really glad you guys are doing this podcast, by the way, and this and this initiative. Congratulations on the work. I'm sure it will flourish and continue to provide important contributions to the discussion. Um, and, and we need to be having more conversations like this. I think I think there needs to be a recognition, though, that sometimes when we talk about family, we talk about caregivers, and we talk about home care. There are assumptions we make about people that they have family, that they have caregivers, that they have homes. There's a longer list of assumptions we make in in palliative care, but in healthcare in general, particularly in the community. When it comes to people experiencing homelessness or other structural vulnerabilities like poverty, those assumptions are not fair. Um, and, and, and that's why we see that the vast majority of people who experience homelessness, while they want to die at home, for example, they end up dying in hospitals and emergency departments. It's just what they call home is structurally incongruent with the way that we've derived and designed our healthcare systems. We are unable in 2021 to deliver home care to people experiencing homelessness. That's really what this boils down to. Mm -hmm. And some people say it's like semantics, calling it home care. No, 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 this is like, we've literally designed it this way from addresses to phone numbers to, you know, mm -hmm. assumptions we make in healthcare. And so that's one piece. The other piece is there's a severe mistrust of healthcare, government and institutions for people who experience homelessness. Mm -hmm. And for good reason, this is a population that has experienced a lot of trauma. And so we spend a lot of time participating in what's called trauma-informed care via the PEACH team to convert these feelings of mistrust into trustworthiness in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, 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 that question hits on a couple fronts for me. And, and I think trauma is a big, 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 big part of it. But we also need to talk more about the assumptions that we're making in healthcare. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you, Nahid. Um, what about this idea of empowerment? Uh, in our podcast, we talk about empowering, activating, um, having people move into the front seat of their healthcare journey. Um, again, all these things seem like a luxury again. Any comment about that for people who are vulnerably housed? I think empowerment is an important part of healthcare. We don't talk about empowering the people we care for enough. I think we're, we, we, you know, a lot of healthcare has been derived from this very paternalistic, top-down kind of style and approach. And when you care for people who live in shelters and on the streets, it's really no different. We also empower the people we care for. That empowerment can sometimes look different, though. Mm -hmm. um, and and one example was, you know, we make a lot of assumptions in healthcare and in palliative care that people have 
you know, caregivers that are family members, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, for many people, not all, but many people we care for who experience homelessness, they don't have family members to support them as caregivers. But there is this thing called the informal caregiving network mm -hmm. or the street family. Um, you know, a guy who lives down the hall from the per the client we're caring for, who um, is like the street brother, and like I don't really understand how they're street brothers, but they are, mm -hmm. or the street sister who's you know supporting someone in subsidized or uh, or supportive housing, and has been you know the caregiver you know has supported the person from diagnosis all the way up until they're they're even bedridden, for example. Mm -hmm. I have seen incredible resilience um, in the people I care for. And one more piece on resilience. I think sometimes um, the media and public perception is that people who live life on the streets are like weak or, or you know, they're, they're you know, yeah, that, that, that perception is out there. And I have to say that that's absolutely not true. The people I care for are strong. They are fighters. They are survivors. They are thrivers. And they are some of the most resilient people I have ever met. I wouldn't last like two seconds on the streets um, personally, but the people I care for, they continue to inspire me and showcase that resilience each and every day. That's empowerment. So can you tell us a little bit more, like paint a picture of what it looks like for someone um, who's facing serious illness, who's living on the streets? Like, what, what does a day look like for someone in that situation? Yeah, I mean, I mean, every situation is different, but it, but in many ways, people you know who experience homelessness are often diagnosed very late in their disease journey when 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 they do get diagnosed, and that that happens because of a lack of access to healthcare and mm -hmm. continuity of care because of trauma and a mistrust of healthcare. And when that diagnosis happens, typically people have difficulty accessing the kind of disease treatment supports they need, like chemotherapy or dialysis. So they're diagnosed late and then often palliative care or quality of life care is not accessible to them. So people spend you know, time on the street. They might be you know, trying to gain sustenance through their uh, employment, including like panhandling or other precarious forms of employment. But because they're sick, they're not able to do that anymore. So people actually get pushed further into the cycle of poverty. Imagine living in a society where as you're dying, you get poorer and you have less access to healthcare because of the trauma you've experienced, because of um, the discrimination you experience. And so what happens is many people don't get access to quality of life supports. Many people don't get supports to their emotional support, the emotional connections that they need and, and, and end up basically in hospital most of the time. And, and th this is what Peach really aims to do by providing that wraparound holistic care. Yes, medical management and supporting pain and symptom management, but more importantly, solving the social determinants of health, optimizing income, organizing food, um, you know, getting a roof over someone's head, uh, providing emotional and, uh, and, 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 and psychosocial support for people, and really getting to a place where you have that trust so you can talk about the future. So this is really what the PEACH program aims to do, convert that really horrible situation I described into mm -hmm. something that's more productive and more person-centered. So um, how do you, as a palliative care physician, build the trust with um, people who, who have no trust in physicians, let's just say? Yeah, fair enough. Or the healthcare system in general. It's a very, system, yeah. it's a really fair question. I think, I think, you know, it's, I'm going to say one phrase and I think it summarizes it really well. I can zone in on it, but it really, if this is all you take away from this conversation, I'm cool with that. Uh, we meet them where they're at. And too often our healthcare system doesn't do that. We make people jump through hoops and, 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 you know, different procedures and processes to get the care they need. They need to, you know, organize their own transportation, go to a hospital on the third floor. That's very difficult for someone who doesn't trust hospitals, has cognitive issues, 
doesn't have the money to get a taxi to go to the hospital. Um, you know, these are just some vignettes that I'm painting to paint the picture, um, but also meet people where they're at around, you know, um, people who use drugs. A lot of the time our healthcare institutions and our health systems actually deny people healthcare when they use drugs. The PEACH program functions through a harm reduction approach and harm reduction is an approach to care to support people who use drugs while allowing them to use drugs but minimizing the harms associated with the use of drugs. And in palliative care, we rarely talk about this. Our discipline, Sammy, has not done enough of what should be done. And by what that means for Canadians coast to coast who use drugs, they literally don't have access to palliative care most of the time. So that's one example of meeting them where they're at. The other example I'll really zone in on is compassion. Um, many people um, don't want to come to a clinic. They don't want you to even come to their home, even if it's a shelter. Mm -hmm. They won't, Maybe they'll meet you in a park and they'll trust you in that setting. Mm -hmm. And so our team will arrange us. We've, we've met at Tim Hortons. We've done meetings on the curb. We've done meetings in the back of my car, <laughs> like whatever works, meet people where they're at in whatever way makes sense. And mm -hmm. I think that derives and centers around trauma-informed care, which centers around compassion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. I'm eating up everything you're saying, <laughs> to be honest with you. And I can see why you're, you know, just out and about everywhere uh, sharing this really important um, message. You know, I'm just wondering myself, but for, you know, all the people who are listening um, today and who will listen in the future and everyone who's participating in our, um, I just say, privileged waiting room revolution, uh, I'm wondering what advice you can give any one person like me or anyone in terms of um, any way we can help or what can we do? Yeah. And, and I appreciate that people want to jump to a place of like action. And I, and I think that's important. That speaks to the good heart and I'm uh, of people. And I think that that speaks to a, a, the good nature of, of our communities. And I get that. I actually ask people to take a step back before you act. I would say, listen, first, learn, read more about what it's like for people experiencing homelessness, check out, you know, websites like the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, mm -hmm. check out homelesshub.ca, which is the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness, mm -hmm. read about interventions and programs like the Peach Program and others, follow people on Twitter and other platforms to learn what's happening and who's saying what, listen to people with lived experiences, and, and, you know, the Encampment Support Network here in Toronto on Instagram and Twitter is super powerful. These are people with lived experiences who are driving change around their own, you know, pathways. I think so. So listen first is, is the first thing. The second thing we can probably do that's most important that anyone literally can do is destigmatize um, uh, the, the, the notion of, of people experiencing homelessness. Having done this work um, for several years now, I can say that in Canada, there, there is a deep seated um, uh, fear and I think sometimes hatred of people who experience homelessness. Mm -hmm. There's often this association, they did it to themselves, they made bad choices, you know, they're at fault. And we need to reframe that because I've never, I've provided care for a lot of people experiencing homelessness, like many, many. Mm -hmm. I've never met a person who wanted to be in the situation they're in and chose to be in that situation. Mm -hmm. People are, are experiencing homelessness because of a weakening social safety net around social assistance, around housing, around Medicare, around Pharmacare, um, um, and, and, and actually uh, an overall lack of compassion that we're, that we're having in this country. And I think once we start to destigmatize and actually start to talk about pathways to the street and people start to see this as a social problem, a social service problem, as a health problem, 
we might be able to do a lot better. And then third, I think inherently the way to enact change is to be political. Like I, I, I'm not going to beat around the bush. We need to start making this a political issue. Homelessness is an expensive problem. It costs taxpayers billions of dollars every year in hospital costs and legal costs and policing and you know everything that's associated with it. It's a human-made problem that we can end. And I encourage people to check out the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness website. It's called Recovery for All. So recoveryforall.ca, a six-point plan to end homelessness in Canada through COVID-19 recovery. And it's something I've been working with them on and promoting because I think it makes a lot of sense. I'd say those three steps. Listen first, work to destigmatize, and get political. (sighs) I don't know how you get everything done in a day because I know you're a very busy clinician. So uh, thank you for all the work you do, but I'm not saying goodbye yet. I just felt I had to thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. can you talk a little bit about your hospice? Um, yeah, so you know um, the the work that I've done um, over the last few years um, to provide healthcare and palliative care for people experiencing homelessness has led to the creation of you know Toronto's first hospice for people experiencing homelessness in downtown Toronto, and it's actually become a model for other institutions across the country and and around the world. Um, It's a sad state of affairs that we've had to advocate for beds for people who experience homelessness to receive palliative care. And it's led to conversations since that time about um, the concept that maybe what we should be advocating for is an improvement across the board so that we don't need specific beds for this purpose, but actually that every institution, whether it's a hospital, a palliative care unit, uh, hospice, or even home and community care programs, mm-hmm. coast to coast, are able to provide health care and palliative care for people. That's why I'm invested in conversations like this with you, Sammy, because mm-hmm. I'm hopeful that we don't, um, you know, kind of, you know, compartmentalize this work. And, and, mm-hmm. and I do appreciate that there's an element of this work that's specialized. And, mm-hmm. and the people that I work with on, on the PEACH team are very expert, you know, they're, they're experts in the work they do. Mm-hmm. But there are some common skills and abilities in, that we should all have to support people who've experienced trauma, people experiencing homelessness or people who live in poverty. And and I think, you know, trauma-informed care is a really good example of that. I think providing care that's holistic and recognizes that there are health inequities in our communities is another. And then recognizing that part of advocacy and our social accountability is to go above and beyond for the people we care for. So, you know, just trying to think, you know, at, at, you know, starting at the micro level, the MISO, and then really going macro with our level of accountability and, and social advocacy in this work. You know, now I completely get it. I mean, I've told you a couple of times that when we have, um, when I meet um, people who are looking to go into palliative care as a, as a um, career, <laughs> Honestly, nine out of 10 times, they tell me they were inspired by your work. And uh, I can see how passionate you are. Um, I share your passion in palliative care. Obviously, the focus is is different for you, but I am so inspired uh, by you. And I'm sure everyone who's listening is also inspired me. Um, you're wonderful. It, it's no wonder you have so many awards under your belt uh, at this point. So. Um, I thank you very much. Lots to think about, lots to chew on, but I thank you so very much for joining us again, Mahid. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you, Sian, and the entire team. I really love what you guys are doing here. And thank you everyone for attending today uh, to listen. I hope it's a, a springboard for many more conversations like this one in the future. 
Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out. Our theme music is Maple by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, principal of Clarity Hub. Please go to our website to join in the conversation, waitingroomrevolution.com.